Welcome back, Warriors, to the Warriors podcast. This is part two of our conversation with Elizabeth Schutz. Now, last week, we made a hard stop right in the middle of a conversation. This week, we are jumping right back into the conversation. So before you listen to this podcast, go back, listen to last week's podcast with Elizabeth. She is a licensed professional counselor. She is a dear friend of mine. I've known her for several years, and I am so thrilled that she took time out of her very busy schedule to come and speak to us from a clinical perspective and speak to us about the power of choice and the power of respecting people's autonomy. This is counter to what we have experienced in this organization we've been discussing in the Enough series. So thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us. Let's get right back into the conversation. But but a different topic I wanted to bring up was, like we've stated so many times, deliverance is the biggest core value of the ministry. So with deliverance, a lot of us are labeled with some kind of spirit that we need to be delivered from. So the belief is, you know, the reason we don't call the police is because, well, that person would not have raped or molested or coerced or stolen or done anything if they weren't being demonically driven by a spirit in that moment. So if we just get rid of that spirit, they'll be free and they'll be fine and they won't do it again, which has actually never been the case. If you are listening and you know that that has been the case, please tell me. I don't believe that exists. I'm willing to hear from you and hear otherwise. But as far as I know, uh, nobody quit watching porn. I certainly didn't stop having sex. Amanda didn't stop having sex. None of this worked. You, You know, Amanda and I, we were for sure labeled with a spirit of lust. I was taken through deliverance hundreds of times for lust, was never delivered. And others are labeled a Jezebel. All three of us here are witches. We have people who have a spirit of alcoholism, a spirit of porn, a spirit of drugs, spirit of cutting. The list could go on and on and on. So when you're diagnosed with, or when you're labeled with those things or a control, that was another big thing. You have a spirit of control. So when you're labeled with that, you tend to, it it, it could go either way. You could start with a series of meetings of people telling you why they all believe you to have a spirit of lust, spirit of control, and or you end up in a deliverance. Sometimes you are coerced into it, and sometimes you're locked in a room and physically restrained. So Elizabeth, could you speak to the the damage done when we, first of all, label people too early, but then but then don't give them the option to speak back about that. I'm sure you have a ton of clients who come to you and you could sit and say, "Mm, they're, they are for sure anxious or they're for sure controlling. How, how would you handle that on a professional level? Um, Well, I think it goes back to honoring someone's voice and choice. When I work with clients that have difficult behaviors, I come at it through the lens of trauma. And what I mean by that is our brain and our nervous system is a social engagement system. And so when a baby is first born, we learn emotional regulation, we learn value and identity through the way that we bond with our caregivers, the way our caregivers look us in the eyes. And if that is disrupted, 
in any degree, right? It starts to create a foundation where if it's not safe to say how I'm feeling, well, then I'm going to have to use different strategies. And so that's where these behaviors start to develop, where if it's not safe to tell you I am angry, it's going to come out as anger directed towards other people in different ways or internally towards myself. I may get into cutting. Um, I may start restricting food in response to things that I experience or things that I'm not receiving. And so I look at all of these type of behaviors as a response to trauma and falls under fight, flight, freeze, right? We know that in our nervous system, but also then submit and attach. So mm-hmm. that goes into why am I keep going back to this person? Even if I know at an intellectual level, they're not healthy. I don't like the way they treat me at times, but why am I still in this relationship? And so this is where good psychoeducation by a licensed clinician who's trained is really important. If we're not licensed, step outside of our wheelhouse. This is where we go, hey, have you talked to a therapist about this? Or, you know, I'm not a therapist. Here's some books that have been helpful. These are really, you know, great resources that might give you some more information, right? We, If you're not licensed, we don't want to be diagnosing. We don't want to, you don't have the understanding as to what's driving some of these behaviors, Because I'm guessing that most of you didn't want to engage in having, for example, sex with random people because you didn't like the shame that you felt after a one night stand or the shame you felt that you cut again. I mean, whatever the behavior is, a lot of my clients have a lot of shame around it because Mm -hmm. it's not the way that they want to show up. They don't want to be treated like they're just a body part, Mm -hmm. right? That's not what they want. But if we just like, we're going to get this out of you, right? We miss all of the setup, what facilitated them getting to the point where they accepted being a body part unconsciously um, Mm -hmm. and and being a participant in that of, you know, oh, I'm just going to have sex with the person because I'm lonely. Well, what's driving that loneliness? Why it's so great that they're willing to tolerate the repercussions, the way that I feel after the one night stand, just so I can meet this immediate urgent need of not feeling lonely. So we have to, we can't skip the, the, the role that good mental health care provides in helping people understand this and sustain growth and healing deliverance as, as a person of faith should never be about violating someone's voice Mm. or choice, right? Never should it violate that as the way that I conceptualize deliverance, it is inviting a person to be aware of where there are wounds and where they have agreed with lies about who they are, right? If we believe things of I, I'm not valuable, well, I'm going to accept things in treatment in my life that lines up with that belief. And that's going to set me up for some abusive relationships if I believe I'm not valuable, right? And this is where, as I conceptualize deliverance, it's about, okay, I'm going to break agreement this is where choices, the person has choice. I'm just creating a safe space of going, okay, what, what belief do you have when this behavior comes up? I don't feel like I have a right to say no. I don't have a right to set limits. And so I allow this person to treat me this way. What do you, what, what would you like to believe? Or what do you think God believes about you? Well, I have, I have a right to safety. I have a right to be treated with respect. Okay. Would you like to believe that? Right. A therapist can do something similar when they are looking at EMDR, what are the, the negative beliefs you have about yourself that then perpetuate unhealthy, unsafe, dysfunctional behaviors? What do you want to be true about yourself? 
well, I'm valuable. I have voice, right? When, so when I think about deliverance, it's a spiritual aspect of helping people to recognize unhealthy beliefs that they have that agree with fear. It says in scripture that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And we know that um, he's come to give us life and life abundantly. Mm-hmm. So beliefs that line up with abundance and peace is I'm valuable. I have a right to dignity. I have a right to respect. I am loved. I am lovable. Fear says I'm not good enough, right? And so that's that's what deliverance should be about, is about creating space for people to have support and safety to look at where those wounds are, mm-hmm. whether that's be through Um, inviting Jesus to be a supportive, safe person there with them. So they have the comfort of the Holy Spirit with them. And and that, that doesn't violate someone's voice and choice, right? It doesn't leave someone traumatized. That's so good. I think about, for me, this took me years and years. I mean, going on 10 years to figure out, you know, I, at one point cut and it was a fairly brief point of time, but I would cut and I had no language, honestly, until I met you, Elizabeth, and just having conversations. I was like, wait a minute. That's what was happening because people always think about a cutter is genuinely suicidal or they are just looking for attention or just being dramatic, which is what I was told. And they're attention seeking. Well, I didn't have language to say that what's happening inside of me is so overwhelming that I, and I cannot think, and you almost get into this, this, it not quite a blackout. I didn't, I never went there, but you get to a state where you're like, I cannot come off of this. You're, you're hot, your mind is racing, your heart is racing. And so to cut or to scratch is a massive release of all of that energy because your body stores up that energy and when I would cut, it was an adrenaline rush and a release that was calming. And a lot of people don't know that, but I, at one point had someone pray over me and my scars and they were healed. So there is no evidence on my body that I ever did cut. So, but what I did, because I didn't address the belief, what I did was I thought, okay, I've been healed of cutting. I don't want to mess my, I've been healed of the the scars. I don't want to mess up my body again because God was so kind and he took the scars away, but it didn't take away that incredibly overwhelming, like, oh, so what did I do? I started watching porn and I started diving deeper into sex because, and, and it was, and I never liked porn. I never liked cutting myself. I didn't wake up and go, oh my gosh, I just cannot wait to cut today. Or I just cannot wait. Like you don't think, I don't think that way. And so porn was a safe, quote unquote, safe replacement for cutting because um, that wasn't going to impact anybody else and it wasn't going to mess up my body. But it did the same thing for me that cutting did. It was a release when my thoughts were too much, when the anxiety was so unbelievably high that having that release in porn was calming. You know, when you're in this ministry in particular, I think you, you can say it in religion lots of religions overall, but this one in particular, that's not you cutting, that's a demon cutting you. So we just get rid of the demon and then you won't do that. That's, you would never normally watch porn. So we're just going to say, 
no more porn or get covenant eyes, which is a totally fine app. If that's where you need to start, then start there, you know, do something, but it's that beating it out of you of get an accountability partner. Um, just pray, just speak. I am pure. Tell yourself I'm a Proverbs 31 woman. And eventually you'll just stop doing the thing. Well, you are missing very key things there. I don't know if y'all can testify to that. I know Amanda's nodding her head or Elizabeth, if you have anything to add on. Yeah. And I think that's where I think the, a lot of churches miss uh, the importance of good mental health care. Let's just pray. Let's just, you know, if you can white knuckle it a little bit better, right? Whether you're a person of faith or not, white knuckling only works for so long, mm-hmm. right? If you're trying to maintain a diet. It's addressing the core things internally. And that's where a great licensed clinician can really help you with digging into what's driving the behaviors. So that way these, these changes are long-term and sustainable and help you to build in healthier habits. I I think deliverance, meaning understanding where the roots of these wounds are, where you're identifying. And I think I mean, I have gone and had inner healing and prayer and and done some of those activities where I have been asked by someone that that's trained, that I trust, that's mature, where they've asked me to recognize and identify a wound that, that I I had, that I've come to them to, to get prayer and ministry for. And I have found insight and help through that, but that did not negate the mental health work that I had to do to help live that out to go, wow, I have a right to be a powerful person. I, I have this wound of rejection, right? And getting prayer and, and inner healing did not take away all of the behaviors and insecurities in the way that I would buzz around trying to feel accepted. It didn't change that. It wasn't this. And, and do I believe that people can experience that? Yes. Right. But by and large, I have seen people have ministry, they receive it, they get prayer, but yet they continue in the same cycles of dysfunction and wonder what's wrong with them or what's wrong with God. But we've missed is we've not actually done the relational work to walk with them and help get them, whether that's like the church helping provide referrals. Maybe the church has a great counseling center. Here's people in the community that you can get resources. Here's qualified professionals, right? It's only as I have done work with a qualified mental health professional, did I then be able to walk into at a different level, those things. So I'm a big advocate for good mental health care. And that doesn't replace like one, it doesn't trump the other. I think God uses both. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful that the inner healing that I had where I learned to quiet myself, to listen, to start to check in and notice those parts of myself that were wounded, that accelerated what I later did in therapy. And I'm so grateful they did not, they worked hand in hand together. Uh, And so I, you know, as someone who went to a theology seminary for my counseling, if I have clients that want that spiritual, like inviting God to be with them in their process, I think there's real power in that for people of faith to Um, have a practitioner who is trained and equipped in integrating faith practice. But I've also, I mean, my, the therapist I've seen is, is not a person of of my same faith. I mean, I've I've had tremendous results in them, right? This person is equipped to understand trauma. And I have many clients who are not people of 
faith and I can sit with them and um, invite them to reflect and be curious with what's happening inside of them. And they get results too. Oh, that's so good. I love that. We could keep going on this all day. I love this conversation. But to in order to wrap this part up, Elizabeth, you are, I, what I always tell people when I introduce you typically is that you are an admittedly one of the biggest book nerds I've ever known, but you are a wealth of knowledge. So for listeners who are out there who have been, who have felt stuck, who have felt like they were too far gone. I know for a fact, we have listeners who were a part of this organization. A few of them still are in the organization and are secretly or uh, um, trying to be secretive about listening to this. And they feel so beat down and they feel like they just have too many demons. Like, oh my gosh, what did I do to be this messed up? And I don't know how many times we've heard people say, either I'm too far gone, I can't be repaired, I can't be delivered. For those people, what advice would you give them as a professional? I'd say no one is too far gone to heal and recover. I mean, I work with highly traumatized individuals who've experienced trauma, often from like infancy. Mm -hmm. And these behaviors have long been entrenched. And I've seen tremendous growth and healing happen for these individuals through good mental health care and healthy, safe environment to be in where their voice and choice is honored. And we can't heal in isolation. So I'd say find a healthy community that honors voice and choice, Mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, maybe it means changing your friend group and going, okay, who in my community is healthy? Meaning I get to show up and have an opinion and my opinion is not bashed, that my emotions are not denied and minimized. They don't have to agree with me, but I get to still show up. So who are those people in your life and strengthen those relationships? If there's someone that uh, you see that does really well at that, ask if you can take them to coffee. That's so good. They mentor people, right? And you don't have to be a person of faith to do that or have that, right? This is looking in who in your community of people. I mean, it could be, you could be part of a an ultimate Frisbee pickup league. You could be part of a uh, volunteer group that helps and goes to the animal shelter regularly. And these are people you meet. Okay. Who are you noticing that has healthier skills than you? How can you get that? Cause our brains have a way of syncing with people. Um, and so I want to be around people that are a little bit further ahead than me. Right. So I want to have people that I can watch and then get into good mental health care, read a good book. Mm-hmm. What, what can you do to find a therapist? And you don't have to have issues to benefit from therapy. A good therapist will help you learn how to use your voice learn how to be reflective, learn how to be curious about yourself. And all of us can benefit from that. You don't have to have major issues or have be on medication or be given a diagnosis. So don't be afraid to get into seeing a therapist. And there are a lot of good community resources. If you can't afford to pay, you know, it may not be exactly what you want. It may be more limited, but start there. If that's all you got, start there. Read. I think language helps create a a framework for insight. So there's some great books that can help us on boundaries, on understanding relationship dynamics. So I don't be afraid to, especially if you're like, I can't afford therapy. I'm kind of afraid of it. Maybe it starts by reading a book on boundaries and going, how can I, how can I work to start putting boundaries in my life? 
So those would be my my practical things of that you can do. And, and it's not too late for, for anybody to do that, whether you're a teen or you're 75. Oh, that's great. And what resources, book resources, would you recommend? Because I have been putting links to a few resources and some of them did come from you in the mm-hmm. show notes. So if you have a few books you could recommend, what would those be? And then I will post a link to those in the show notes for people. Yes, um, I think a good book on boundaries. Um, so if you're wanting one that is more faith-driven, um, I would say there's always, you know, Townsend and Cloud, their boundaries. That's a kind of a standard, well-read boundaries in a lot of different areas. Um, there's also I Do Boundaries that Hannah, Hannah Covington, Covington just came out with. And then I have our clients read Boundary Boss. It's a secular book, but it's fantastic in terms of understanding how your childhood impacts your boundaries. Mm, So I'd say that one. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say start there with boundaries. That's a good foundation. And then I, then from there, um, I love the book, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. Um, because a lot of these things that you're talking about stem from wounded childhood. One thing that I talk about with our clients, um, this is from Pia Melody. She talks about the five core things that every human being is born with, mm-hmm. that we are born vulnerable, valuable, imperfect, spontaneous, and open. And there's one more that I'm forgetting. What I think is so important is... Um, see, oh, dependent, we have needs and wants. So we have a right to have our needs and wants. But when any of those get wonky, they cause maladaptive responses and beliefs and behaviors. So I'd say if you can start to recognize your parents, this is not dishonoring your parents, but going, hey, if they had limited capacity or tools, how did that impact me? How did that play out in my beliefs and my behaviors? We can start to have greater awareness of, is that re repeating in my adult life? Am I tolerating things in my adult life? Because that just feels familiar because my childhood was like that. And what is familiar has a way of feeling safe. And that's how we're wired as human beings. That's why if you've come from an alcoholic family, you're more likely to marry someone who's an alcoholic because it feels familiar, even in its dysfunction. It, there's a sense of safety because it's familiar. Wow. That is so good. Thank you so much for being on here today. This was brilliant. And I would love to have you come back at some point. I just really appreciate you. We'll be back with another podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. 